If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open to James chapter 4. We're going to look at verses 1 through 12. You're going to see your pastor on some serious caffeine right now because we're going to get through this in the next 30 minutes. I'm going to try to get you out of here at 1230, okay? Uh, please don't hold it against me if it's 1231. But what we're, we're going to look at today is we've been continuing on the series through the book of James, uh, understanding the concept of an uncivilized faith, which means there's a faith that God has called us to live that sometimes we never fully realize because we've bought into something that is less than what God purposed for us. And many times we buy into a comfortable, easy, safe faith that we can just kind of manage on our own. And then we come to the book of James and he blows that out of the water. He challenges us every area of what it means to follow Jesus. And so today, looking at these 12 verses, we're going to talk about uncivilized community. Community being the life-giving, healthy, relational connection that we have with each other in this thing called the church or the body of Christ, and how that helps us in our own journey in following Jesus, and the importance of that, and the value of that in our lives. If you read through the New Testament, you realize that over and over and over again, that you, you, you come to this realization, you can't follow Jesus unless you're in relationship with other people. You just can't do it. You can pretend, you can try, but it never works because so much of what it means to follow Jesus has to do with the way we relate to each other. That's why when you get into like Paul's writings and a lot of in the, in the epistles, you see that there's the one another's. There's these things that we're supposed to, to do with each other and to help each other. Here's just a quick list. We're, we're actually instructed to love each other, to encourage each other, to be devoted to each other, to confess our sin, sin to each other, to be patient with each other to forgive each other, to be kind with each other, to be compassionate with each other, to carry each other's burdens, to build up each other, and to live at peace. That's just a small list of a huge list of all those. All those things have one thing that's very true. You can't do them by yourself. They have to be done in community. And because of that, James, and what we're going to look at today, challenges us because we struggle with this thing called community. Now, before we get to James, let me just read two passages of Scripture from the book of Acts that takes us back 2,000 years ago and says, this is what true community looks like. This is what God purposed for the first church. This is what God purposes for our church. So this is Acts chapter 2, verses 42 and 47. So listen to the kind of things that were happening for them. It says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles, all the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Now listen to Acts chapter 4, verses 32 to 35. It says, All the believers were in one heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's grace was so powerfully at work in all of them that there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, uh, bought, them brought the money before the, or bought from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Whoa. Just... Let that settle in for a moment. They were so bound together, they were so connected together that God's power showed up. They were so connected together that there was no needy person among them because they were all in together. They were connected, they were relating, they were in community. That's the ideal picture that God gives us of what it's supposed to look like. 
But as we'll see, if you look at James chapter, chapter 4 here, we're going to work our way through the verses. We're going to start with verse 1 because James kind of sets it up and says, Hey, yeah, Acts 2, Acts 4. That's where it's supposed to be. But look at verse 1. What does James say? He says, What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your de- desires that battle within you? What is James starting off with? Community is great, but you're struggling with this. Community is what's supposed to be, but there's inside of you, there's this internal turmoil and this tension and this division. And so as James does in James fashion, he takes the gloves off and he goes after us. So I'm I'm not apologizing for scripture, but if you're going to get upset, get mad at James and the Holy Spirit, not me. So let's look at, I want to walk through the first four things that we walk through in the passage, we get to verse two, are things that kill community, that destroy the community that God wants to build amongst his people. And the first thing that James mentions in in verse 2 is the concept of selfishness. He says, you desire, but you do not have, so you kill. Now, as far as I know, within the framework of Antioch, no one has got to the point where you're killing each other because you don't have what you you want. But the motivation is inside of us of self-centeredness to the point where we so want what we want that it'll come at the expense of other people, that we'll lose sight of people around us. The word desire that James uses is actually the root word where we get our word hedonism, which is basically hedonism is anything that I want to bring pleasure to me at the expense of other people. It doesn't matter. It all that matters is my joy, my pleasure, my happiness, and it doesn't matter about anybody else. It's a completely kind of self-centered existence. It's me first and everybody else second. And James is saying that's what begins to creep in to this thing called the church, this mindset and it happens subtly, but it becomes a normal part of what we call church. And it comes in the form of the way or the lens that we use to understand what church exists for is that normally, what we, even whether we can articulate it or not, we think that the church exists, exists for us. So when you get up on a Sunday morning, normally, most of us are not thinking about anybody else necessarily who's going to be at church, but what we want from church that day. So we're, we're coming in and we're thinking, what's in it for me? Not what's in it for anybody else, what's in it for me? So that means from the time you come to church on a Sunday morning and you drive into the parking lot, you're thinking, where's the closest parking space for me, right? You walk into the sanctuary and you say, where's the best seat for me, right? It's always for me. What, what do I want to do? What do I, all the, it's just through this lens which says, I don't really care about what anybody else experiences. I just want it to be good for me. Now, none of us do that, right? Of course, none of us do that. We all do it. That's why we become a critic of what happens in our gatherings because we're going through that lens once again. But what if you got up on a Sunday morning and you thought to yourself for a moment, what's in it for everybody else today? I wonder what God's up to in everybody else's life. And if I show up, I'm not showing up for me. I'm showing up for everybody else because I'm a part of a community that when I'm there, I get to actually be a benefit to somebody else. I get to be generous with other people. I get to reach out and actually touch somebody. I actually can pray for other people. I can engage with other people. I can actually be present. And what will that do for everybody else? See, we forget that side. And then sometimes that's a challenge. So James is saying, listen, selfishness will kill community. Second thing, competition will kill community. So he goes on in verse 2 and he says, but you covet, uh, you covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and you fight. Covet means to actually lust. 
It means to be selfishly driven to the point where when somebody else benefits, you can't fully take joy in their benefit because it's not you. We talked about this last week or the week before. Understanding that one of the signs that you know that you're jealous or that you're covenant or you're envying is that when somebody else experiences something good in their life, you can't take joy in it. Because all you can think is, God, why not me? Why did they get it and not me? And so what comes in is this selfishness that steals the joy of a moment of what God may be doing in somebody else's life. That's what James is saying. It's that competitiveness of, it's like I win or they win, but we can't both win. It's a win or a lose. And when, we come, when it comes to Jesus, it's a win-win. Okay, let me use it this way. So how many UCLA fans? Okay, how many USC fans? Oh, wow. That's pretty, that was pretty weak, but that's okay. Anyway, we'll forgive you. So uh, UCLA, USC, obviously big rivalry, okay? So I'm a, I'm a UCLA fan, so you either like me or you don't like me. Okay, but you know what's so funny when you identify yourself with one or the other? I did this experience. When we were in Oregon, same thing. When I became an Oregon Duck fan, everybody said, okay, well, you're not a Beaver fan. So this is what usually, this is the assumption everybody makes. Well, if you're a UCLA fan, then you hate USC, right? So when USC loses, it's as good as UCLA winning, right? Because you hate the Trojans and you love the Bruins. And same thing when I was in Oregon. If you became a Duck fan, you automatically became a Beaver hater. That's what, and I said, they said, so you must hate USC because you like UCLA. I'm like, no, I don't. I love USC. I root for USC. I hope USC wins every game except for one, when they play UCLA. <laughs> That's the only game I want them to lose on their schedule. But I would root for USC. And so, like yesterday was a great day. They finally both won on the same day. And it was great. But see, we, we think of that when we think of ourselves and what we want we end up saying, wow, if they're winning, I can't possibly win. So they have to lose for me to win. And that's the competition that gets introduced into the church just across the board, not just at our church. But that's why we have, it's so amazing when something profound happens in another fellowship across the city or in some other place. And what do we do? We don't celebrate it. We get jealous of it. God, why not here? Why don't you do it here? And so we talk down other churches. We go, oh, yeah, they don't, something's wrong there. That's, that's not really legit. God's not really at work over there. Why don't you let God be God and celebrate what he's doing? Because he wants to do it everywhere. But what kills community is when we can't take joy in the victories of other people in our life. Third thing, uh, community is also killed through manipulation. James goes on in verse 2. He continues on. He says, you do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasure. So he's talking, he's using this monetary example. So it's, it's that kind of mindset that when you, at, you ask for something out of the goodness of your heart, why? Because you want to share it with others. When you know deep down inside, you don't want to share anything. You just want what someone's going to give you or what God's going to give you. I've heard some people, God, bless me, and I'll bless all those around you. Why don't he just skip you and bless everybody else around you, right? That's what James is saying, is you, your motives are wrong. That's why don't you, you're not getting what you're asking for, because you're manipulating God to get what you want, and you're not being honest, and you're not being transparent about what your motives are. How many times in our lives have we either, if we're honest, or been on one or the other sides of manipulation? Either we've used somebody and we try to convince them we weren't to get what we wanted or we've been used by other people so they can get what they want. And somehow we try to pretend that it's not manipulation. 
Uh, I said it for service, and I'll, I know we're recording this one too. I'll, I'll come out and say it. So this is a story about Dennis Eastermost. You know, Den- Dennis is my boss now. He's our, our supervisor. He oversees four square churches in our area. But when I was on staff years ago with Dennis, uh, Dennis had a healthy addiction, uh, and so did I, to a place called McDonald's. Um, but Dennis was a little bit more advanced in years, and his body had taken its, had taken its toll, and he had an, a cholesterol issue. So he wasn't, by doctor's orders and by his wife Patsy's orders, he was not to go to McDonald's. So I, I watched a pattern begin to develop. When Patsy would leave the office around lunchtime, Dennis would come into my office. And I remember the first time he did it, I was like, wow, I mean, this is, this is my senior pastor. This is, you know. He'd come in my office, he goes, I'm going to take you to McDonald's. I'm like, seriously? You're gonna? He goes, I'm buying. He goes, I want to take you to McDonald's. I'm like, really, me? Like, at first, it's like the new staff member, you want to take me out to my favorite place? And then he kept talking. And then I realized it really had nothing to do with me. And he said, yeah, he goes, but you have to drive. I said, why do I have to drive? He goes, because if, if I drive, Patsy will get in my car, and she's going to smell McDonald's, and she's going to know that we went there. So you have to drive, and you can't say anything to her. And what are you supposed to do? He's my boss. I'm like, all right. So we did. We hop in my car, and I got wrappers, and I got, you know, I got fries on my floor. And you know why? Because Dennis wanted to have McDonald's. And now, if Patsy listens to this, don't be mad at me, Patsy. Be mad at Dennis and deal with your husband on this. But anybody ever experienced that where you think, oh, you chose me? You, and then you realize, oh, no, I'm just a means to your end. And when we do that in the church, what happens is that we begin to become very aware of that. And so we disengage from community. Why? Because we know we've used people and we've been used by people. And we don't want to do that. It kills the community that God's building among us. And then verses 4 and 5, then James really kind of takes off the gloves. And he says, another community killer is spiritual adultery. He says, you adulterous people, don't you, uh, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think scripture says without reason that he je- he's jealously longs for the spirit that has caused, he's caused to dwell in us? So what is James saying? Remember, the context is community. So what is he saying? He's saying when you choose to disengage from community, when you begin to slip into selfishness and manipulation and the things that the world lives in, you become a friend to the world. And you, in becoming a friend to the world, you become an enemy to God. Now, that's, that's pretty harsh, but this is what James is saying. He's saying in the context community, which many times we think is optional, staying engaged with each other, investing in each other, doing all the one another's, we think, ah, I don't really need to do that. What we're doing is we're creating or we're actually acting out what James is calling spiritual adultery. Why? Because now we're cheating with the world on God. We've bought into the lie that all adultery tells us that the grass is greener on the other side. That if you leave this horrible context of relationship, you can find something so much better over there only to find out when you get there, it's not what you thought it would be. James is saying that's friendship with the world. And because of that, the way that we avoid that is that we live in community, and we'll talk about it in a moment, we don't live in selfishness, we don't live in manipulation, we don't live in competition with each other, and then we begin to think the way God wants us to think and value each other in community. It's pretty difficult to understand that that's a strong analogy that James would use the analogy to talk about community in the context of spiritual adultery. That's how serious this is. 
That's how important this is, that James would go to that level. And then, well, there's four things I want to just highlight going on to look at verse 6 and 7. These are things that begin to build community in us. Those things tear community down. These are the things that James highlights that actually build community among us. The first one in verse 6 and 7 is that we have to get on God's agenda. So James says, but he gives us more grace. So he says, you don't have to be friends friend with, with the world, but he gives us more grace. That is why scripture says, God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. And then he says in verse seven, submit yourselves then to God. What does submitting to God mean? That means that we're admitting that God is a higher authority than we are. We're admitting that God's way is better than our way. We're choosing to do what, what, God, do what God wants to do instead of what we wanna do. We're admitting that God is actually smarter than we are. And that sometimes is difficult because all of us, whether we admit it or not, all of us have agendas. We have an agenda, especially when it comes to the church. We have an agenda of what we expect. We make assumptions about what we think is true. And nine times out of 10, our agenda is our agenda. It's not God's agenda, but we want it to be God's agenda, but it's really our agenda. And if we get stuck in that, then we never can get onto God's agenda. And that's a, one of the things, if you've gone through a line, which is kind of the front door into Antioch, you, one of the things we start with in the first 20 minutes is we talk about assumptions and agendas. Why is that? Because if you've had any church background, when you transition into another church, you, whether you know it or not, you walk in the door of a new church with an agenda. It's either the agenda of, I kind of want to recreate what I experienced where I, where I was somewhere else, or I don't want anything to do with my past, so I have a brand new agenda that is the polar opposite of my past. And then it gets applied onto the church. When we do that to the church, when we do that to God, guess what it always leads to? Disappointment. It may be a while before we get there, but eventually we get there. Why? Because it didn't meet my agenda. And then what happens is the normal progression in the body of Christ is that when our agenda isn't met, we finally make transition happen, and then we go to another place of worship, and we can hang out there a little longer, but when our agenda isn't met, then we go somewhere else. And why is that? Maybe there's a common denominator. Maybe we have the wrong agenda. Maybe it's our agenda. It's not God's agenda. And if that's true, then we have to ask the question, what's God's agenda? What is God's agenda? That we have a cool building and a great worship team and, and that, that we have a really nice name and there's a sign on outside of the building. God's agenda has nothing to do with our building, our facility, or what we call our ministries. God's agenda is bigger than all of them. The simplest understanding of God's agenda is the concept of reconciliation. Jesus came and he died and he rose again because the God of the universe desires to be in relationship with his creation, and because of our own sin, we are separated from him, and Jesus, through his death, is in the process of reconciling all things back to God. That's why we're here. That's why the church exists. That's why Jesus hasn't returned yet, because God is in the process of drawing people back into relationship with him through Jesus. That's God's agenda, and if we get on God's agenda, it changes the way we view each other. It changes the way we view people because now we start to realize this, this bond of community, the relationships that we have, that God is in the process of drawing everyone, people that we like, people that we don't like, back to him through Jesus, and we begin become a part of that mission. It changes everything. His, his agenda, his purpose, his will is really simple. It's not complicated. 
And that's why we have to check our agendas at the door. So just so you know, this isn't, that's why the thing I've strived to in, in pastoring is I never want any church that I pastor to ever have my agenda. If, I, if the church I pastor has my agenda, I have failed miserably. So we go back to scripture. What is God's agenda? What does he have for us? Then there's a second, a second thing that builds community, and that is not only do we get on God's agenda, but we get off the enemy's agenda. Because in verse seven going on, James says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. So did you know the enemy has an agenda for your life? Where God's agenda has, has, has all to do with community and his mission and working together because that's the way God has set it up. The enemy has another agenda. It's called isolation. His primary avenue of working in your life is to remove you from community to disengage, to pull back. That's exactly what he wants all of us to do because he's a predator. And what does a predator do? A predator looks for the weakest member, isolates them, and then attacks. The enemy does the same thing in our life. And that's why one of the lies that we believe all the time is, is that when something in our life changes, when something bad happens, when we fail or something goes awry, one of the first things we do is we disengage from community, which means we disengage from the church. We find our way out of fellowship. Why? Because we don't want people to really know what's going on inside of us. So we just pull back. And then one, one of two things happens. We get isolated, the enemy starts working on us, or nobody comes after us and we get mad at everyone else like it's their fault. We're the ones that disengaged. We're the ones that ran when the community is still there. But the enemy wants you and I to think that we can just go solve our problems on our own, and we never can. It's only in community. So if you've ever entertained the thought of, well, I just need to pull back, I just need, to dis- I just need some time, I've heard this, we're taking a break. You can never take a break from community. That's a lie that the enemy wants to put in. Don't take a break. You can take a break from anything else, you just can't take a break from community because then the enemy will know, okay, now is my opportunity. Now is my opportunity to attack. And that's why we've talked about one of the, so important, it is so important to be in a community group if you're a part of Antioch. Because this is partial community. Full community is when we actually get into each other's lives. We get to know each other and our journeys and our stories and our failures and we support each other and we disciple each other. That doesn't happen right here. That happens in a community group. Because this kind of setting didn't happen much in the New Testament. They didn't have a building. Remember what it says? They met in temple courts, which they didn't have this. They had houses They had homes. That's where they connected. That's where there was true fellowship and true community. And then there's a third thing. Look at verse 8 through 10. And that is to build community, we have to humble ourselves before God. So James goes on, and here we go. Take the gloves off again. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourself before the Lord, and he will lift you up. What James is saying is I think there's something that underlies so much of what we understand about ourselves. James is saying your way of life is bankrupt because you've refused to humble yourself before the Lord and when you do that, you stake your claim as God. That you are your own God. In fact, that's, that's the whole history. If you go back to the beginning of time, what's the lie that, that Eve believed and Adam believed because the Satan said, the serpent comes and Satan says to Eve, did God really say, and then goes on to say, God doesn't want you to eat from that tree. Why? Because if you do, you will become just like him. And what they process is that I can be God. 
And that's been the battle for now for thousands and thousands and thousands of years, is humanity trying to fight for the position that only God can hold. And the only way to get beyond that is to humble ourselves before the Lord. And when we humble ourselves before the Lord, what does that do? That acknowledges I am incomplete. I don't have all the answers. I am not self-contained. I can't do it. I'm not self-sufficient. I can't do it all on my own. Therefore, I, it reminds me how much I need God and how much I need people in my life. That's what humility does. It gives you an accurate picture of your brokenness to say, I need people to help me. I can't do this on my own. And that's the thing that we have to come to. It's kind of like the picture, if you've seen, it was out a few number of years ago, the movie Bruce Almighty with you know, Jim Carrey. Funny movie. People either loved it or hated it. Yeah, nothing, not everything in that movie was bad, and not everything in that movie was theologically correct. But the whole concept was we all, one time or another in life, try to be God. And if you watch the movie, you realize when he became God, the world fell apart. And it's the world that we live in. This is what we have produced as trying to be our own God. It hasn't worked, and that's why Jesus is trying to reconcile us back to God through his death and his resurrection. And then final point, I know I'm moving fast. In, in, in verse eight, go back to verse eight, is that we need to be in communion with God. So James says, come near to God and he will draw or come near to you. Now, this doesn't mean that somehow we have to take the first step, otherwise God's just gonna sit back on his throne and just wait, tapping his foot like, oh, come on, hurry up, I can't move until you move. It's not what James is saying. God's spirit is present. He, he hasn't gone anywhere. He doesn't disappear. And like we say, saying, he doesn't hide himself, himself to tease us. He doesn't play that kind of game with us. But when you and I take a step towards him, we realize he's already right here with us. He's not some long journey away. He's absolutely present in our lives. And that's why being in a deep, intimate connection with God will transform us so that we can see that transformation spread to other people's lives. So community is so important because we learn and we grow and we stretch and we're challenged and we encourage by each other, being present together in, in one place and in relationship with each other. That happens more effectively when you are drawing from the deep well of your soul of what God has done in you. And a big part of where that happens is in your own private connection with Jesus on an ongoing basis. That's what James is saying. Listen, draw near to God because he'll be present in your life and then you'll not only experience transformation, you'll have more to offer everybody else around you. Why? Because you're not trying to reach down into a dry well and trying to produce water that you can't produce. It's a perfect example is Jesus. If you look at Matthew 3 and 4, you don't have to turn there. In Matthew 3, we know that Jesus is baptized and at his baptism, the Holy Spirit descends on him and it's at that moment because remember, Jesus is fully God and he's fully man. He, he becomes what we would call filled with the Holy Spirit. So he's living out in his humanity, filled with God's power because the Spirit is resident in him. So the next part, what happens after that? So he's got this equipping and now he moves forward, and he moves forward into a time of solitude with the Father. He goes into the desert, and for 40 days he fasts and prays. Why? Because he's going to connect with the Father. He and the Father are one. Therefore, he needs that in his humanity, and he draws that from the Father. And then what happens next? Jesus in his humanity and, and, his, and his divinity the enemy comes along, and right after he's been, what, he hasn't eaten for 40 days. Some of you have done 40-day fast. I'm not tough enough to do that. But 40 days is a long time. And so the enemy comes along and says, hey, you got the power to create food. You can take a stone and make it into bread. And what does Jesus do? He resists that and says, no. And then 
Then he comes along again and he, he offers him the ability to demonstrate his power and takes him up and says, throw yourself off the temple. You know in a moment angels will come and save you. And Jesus says, no. And then he takes him to a place where he can see all the kingdoms of the world and he offers them to him. And all you have to do is bow down and worship me. And Jesus says, no. Why could Jesus say no? Oh, it's because he's God and he doesn't understand. No, Hebrews tells us he was tempted at every point just as we are tempted yet without sin. What did Jesus have? He had the fullness of God's spirit in him and he can draw from that well so he could live the life he was supposed to live. We can live that life. And you may think like, I got nothing to offer. You spend time to Jesus, you got everything to offer. Even if you feel like all you have is a little bucket and you don't have a big well, you've got more to offer. And that's why when we come together in community, it isn't about you, it's about us. It's the church. What is the one defining factor that Jesus gives in the scriptures about what the church should look like to the world? They will know us by our love if we love one another. If we draw from the well of God's love in our life for each other, the world will look at us and say, we don't have that. We don't have that. We have division and quarreling and wars and fighting and division, all those kinds of things, but we don't have that. But when the world looks at the church now, what does it see? It sees like, what, 50 or 60 or 70,000 denominations. It sees churches fighting with each other. It sees churches splitting, and they look and think, ah, we're, in, no, we're not any worse than you are. We don't need that. But if they see a group of people who are diverse and different and broken and come together and they actually value each other and they love each other and they take care of each other, they'll say, we need that. That's what we need. And why does that happen? It's because we're drawing from the deep well of what Jesus has done in us. Find time to spend time with Jesus and let him speak to you. Read through the scriptures. Let the Holy Spirit penetrate your heart. Give him that time. Usually we don't give him enough time. That's why, do you know we worship for 47 minutes this morning? Some of you are like, yeah, it wasn't long enough. Some are like, really? I was done 20 minutes ago. We just don't give God time. He's got to fit into our schedule, and when he doesn't fit into our schedule, it's like, well, I got to move on to the next thing. No, that's why Jesus gave the Father 40 days, and he came out ready for what was coming next. So let me just read this last couple of verses, because James now, in the, on the negative side, actually describes for you and I what his community now began to look like among us. Verses 11 and 12. It says, brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against a brother or sister or judges them speaks against the law and judges it. But when you judge the law, you are not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy, but you, who are you to judge your neighbor? James ends with a negative charge to us. He's saying, listen, don't slander, don't judge. If you live in true community and you draw from the well of what Jesus has done in your life and you value other people, guess what you won't do any longer? You won't slander each other. We won't judge each other. Why? Because if you humbly become, come before God and you come in contact with your own brokenness, the last thing that you want to do is find somebody else that has an issue. Why? Because you finally have seen the plank in your eye and you're not about to go after the speck in somebody else's. And that's what community becomes. That means if community is truly what we're living out, deep, healthy, life-giving relationships with each other. You know what we won't do? We won't speak ill of each other. We won't say bad things about other people. We won't gossip. We won't pass judgment on somebody else's failure. Why? Because we're in contact with our own failure. We understand that. And we value what somebody else is going through. Why? Because we know how broken we are as well. That's what God has for us. That's what James is going after. Can you imagine a church without gossip? It's actually possible. 
Can you imagine a context without judgment when somebody walks in the door and their brokenness is not covered up and it's out there that they don't feel the sting of judgment from anyone? Why? Because we all know we're all in the same boat, that the ground is level at the foot of the cross and we don't, no one stands above the other. That's the beauty of the body of Christ. That's the community. That's why all these people in the New Testament could come together and be one in heart and mind. Why? Because they realized how much they needed Jesus and how much they needed each other. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the words of James to challenge us once again to embrace an uncivilized faith. And I ask that you would, you would change our understanding of our own faith that, Lord, we would not live out me first any longer. We would not somehow only get, have joy and have happiness if we are the one being blessed or we are the one that is winning and somebody else has to lose. But, Lord, that we would see that your value is great for all of us. And because of that, Lord, we would be able to, to see the win in our life and the win in somebody else's life and be able to celebrate that together. So, Lord, I even ask where we do have broken relationships, where we maybe even have disengaged, that you would once again draw us back into relationship with you, draw us back into relationship with each other so that ultimately, Lord, we can experience what that church, that first church experience. We can be together. We can be one. We can be what you called us to be. And the beauty of that is even you've said it. You inspired in the scriptures when Luke wrote it that you added to their number daily, that you did miraculous signs through the apostles, that you did things so that people didn't have need because there was this community called the church. So Lord, help us to live that out. In Jesus' name, amen.